0: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Joyce Vance. Today we'll be discussing DOJ's progress in obtaining witness testimony in connection with the January 6th investigation efforts to protect our elections against threats which seem to be just mounting as we get closer to the day of the midterms, and more convictions in the plot to kidnap Michigan's governor by militia members, along with the rising tide of political violence in the country with today's attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But y'all, it's such a serious news week that before we get started, I really just wanted to do something completely uh, other end of the spectrum. You know, it's almost Halloween. Um, I have not bought my Halloween candy yet, but I need to go out and get that early this week. I love the holiday. We live in one of those neighborhoods where kids come from all over because it's sort of flat and easy to get around in. And especially after the pandemic years, I'm really looking forward to it. And it has me thinking about Halloween costumes that I've worn over the years and some that I've made. And I'm wondering what
1: your favorite Halloween costumes are. Barb, what do you think? Oh man, that's a good one. Um, I did hear of a student this year who is going as uh, Mabel Mora from Only Murders in the (laughs) Building, which made me very happy. I think that's a cool one. Um, You know, um, I'm thinking of my kids when they were young. Halloween was so fun with them. I guess one of my favorite times was, my son, Mac, when he was in kindergarten, that's when the movie Lilo and Stitch was popular and he asked me if he could be Stitch for Halloween and I thought, oh my gosh, Stitch, are you kidding me? That's like the most complicated costume ever, ever. you know. Really? You don't want to just be like a ghost or something? Or, um <laughs> So I said, let me let me see what I can do. Let me work on. He's like, well, maybe you could make it. Eh, let me see what I can do. So you know, I went online and I saw that the Disney Store, for an exorbitant price, made a Stitch costume. So um, so I ordered it. But you know, you're never sure if it's actually going to make it on time. So um, he would. I, I ordered it. And then he would ask about it every day. Like, uh, what do you think? Are you going to be able to, you know, pull off a stitch costume for me? He said, you know, I'm working on it. Let me see what I can do. I'm working on it. So every day I would say that I'm working on it. And then sure enough, it shows up, but not until, you know, Halloween. And I say, here you go. Here is your stitch costume. And you know what he told me? It wasn't until many years later that it suddenly dawned on him that I had bought it and not made it because I kept saying, <laughs> I'm working on it. And he thought, and he was telling all his friends in it's kindergarten, so like, it, was, you know, it looked great. Yeah, my mom made this. Wow, she's amazing. <laughs> so for years he thought that I actually made his Stitch costume. I'm sorry oh, he I love learned that. the ugly truth one day.
2: Mm, oh, Kim, what about right. you? You know, my uh, I had those when I was a kid. It was mostly, remember those store-bought costumes that, that were really like a plastic thing oh, yeah. that you put over your clothes and then a mask? And then I was also <laughs> in... Detroit. So it was cold. So usually the thing would go over my coats. So I'd never had really memorable Halloween costumes. But as an adult, I had this tradition. And, you know, our listeners know I talk a lot about my late, great, amazing dog, Boogie. So we would do our Halloween costumes together because the funny thing about Boogie is he hated clothes. He did not like things put on him. But I think he understood Halloween because he really liked people coming to the door and knocking on the door and seeing him, he would get super excited. So he would totally tolerate a costume on Halloween Halloween night in a way that he would never tolerate anything on his body any other time. So we had just joint costumes for years and years. My two favorites, I think, one was he was a little Karen Terrier mix that was Dorothy and Toto, and I put a little kerchief on him that said, not in Kansas anymore, (laughs) which is what made people understand that... Um, and another one is when I was Lieutenant Uhura of Star Trek and he was a triple. Um, but I miss him. So Halloween is bittersweet for me because I think about how I used to dress up with him. And that was our favorite Aww. holiday together. Oh, Jill, what do you do for Halloween? I, bet well, it's good. I, I love Halloween. I
3: really do. And I've frequently given Halloween parties. And it's hard to get adults to dress in costume. I don't know why, because I think it's so much fun. But I think what Kim just said made me, I'll talk about what I'm going to do this year. I'm dressing as Brisby. I have (laughs) a... (laughs) So he won't have a costume because he hates having anything added to him. But I will be dressed as Brisby. I have a pajama set that's, you know, black and white spots. And I have a mask that I got in New Orleans a few years ago. And so I will be Brisby. And one of my favorite costumes was my cousin Jonathan dressed his runner as a Dalmatian by painting black spots on a white (laughs) t-shirt and making the dog wear this t-shirt, you know, putting his legs through the arms. And so that's one of my other favorites, but I have a lot of favorites. So we have to do the show for many years so that I can talk about my other favorites.
0: Uh, Jill, oh, we are going to have target. to have pictures. Okay. Have got
1: to have pictures of you and Brisby together. Do you yes, promise? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, Jill, don't I? I don't want to, you know, blow blow the surprise. But Brisby told me he's actually dressing as you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Brisby's going to have his little blonde wig on. Right. Exactly.
1: That'll and be a so pin. adorable. Yeah. You know, Brisby's and a pin. pin.
0: That's funny. You know, my mom. I do mom have at used- least a
3: dozen Dalmatian pins, but I don't think there's <laughs> any way I can attach them to him. Hmm. No, so, so, my
0: mom used to make me these wonderful costumes. I'm the opposite of you, Kim. I was always jealous of, like, you know, the Cinderella with the mask. Um, although, in hindsight, I really appreciate my mom's elaborate costumes. But I was thinking about um, the year that I was Washington semester in college. And so, you know, you're just there for one semester, but you make friends. And we went as a pack of crayons. We just dressed in the different colors. It was a simple costume. It wasn't anything fancy. But I look back with so much fondness um, on the friendships and, and the good times that you have with people, which I think is why I like Halloween. It's all about having a good time with people that you love. Oh, that um, is- So I'm looking forward to it
2: that's really true i mean in law school i remember my friends and i who i spoke about my wolf pack we were the spice girls and that oh, that's was good the most fun that. was just the fact that we were all doing it together so if i can scrounge up some pictures from these things that we've mentioned i'll put them in the show notes There was a lot of January 6th-related legal action this week, and most of it involved witness testimony or efforts by Donald Trump to stop people from testifying. So, Jill, we may hear more about Trump's efforts to stop Mark Short, Vice President Pence's former chief of staff, from testifying. What do we know about that, and what does it mean?
3: Well, first of all, I think we will be hearing a lot more about Trump's continuing efforts to stymie any investigation of his wrongdoing and of the January 6th, in its broadest sense, not just the violence on January 6th. But, uh, of course, Mark Short would know more about the pressure on Vice President Pence, and that's why he's being called to testify. Um, As you all know, and as our listeners probably do too, grand jury testimony is, of course... Uh, always under seal. It's secret. It can't be revealed. And there was, even the papers in this case have been sealed. And there's an effort to get it unsealed, which means that the newspapers um, will get it and the American public will get to know what the arguments are. And so we'll have to wait and see whether this happens and whether it gets unsealed. In Watergate, um, we actually applied to the court on our own motion to unseal grand jury testimony, not you know, papers filed to keep things secret, but the actual testimony. And it was granted uh, for us to turn over to the House Judiciary Committee, which was uh, in the process of impeachment proceedings. And that was used as a roadmap for impeachment. So it can have a very good effort, but all of this is a delay tactic from the president. And I believe that these people will end up being witnesses.
2: And Barb, the Supreme Court was involved in another witness dispute, but this one was between uh, an attempted fake elector from Arizona, Kelly Ward, and the January 6th committee. So tell us what happened there and what do you think the outcome might be?
1: Yeah, so the January 6th committee has served a subpoena on Kelly Ward, who is the Republican uh, chair of uh, Arizona um, as a fake elector, uh, as they have other fake electors from around the country. And she filed a lawsuit challenging that subpoena saying that it violated uh, first amendment rights and medical privacy rights because she and her husband are both uh, doctors. Now it only seeks hers. So I don't know the relevance of her husband's phone. But, um, you know, so far the courts have rejected that challenge. The Ninth Circuit rejected that challenge. And so now she's appealing to the Supreme Court. And Justice Elena Kagan just granted an administrative stay while the full court takes a look at it. So I think there was some reporting suggesting that Justice Kagan was deciding this on the merits or suggesting that this argument was meritorious uh, when you know this is just one of these administrative stays that puts a hold on things for the court to take a look at it, to decide whether they wanna take it up. I think it seems likely to me that they will not, that this is uh, an appropriate use of, uh, subpoena power that the goal here is to find out who she was communicating with so that they can figure out who else might have been involved in this fake elector scheme they are investigating uh, the efforts to subvert the election they're not really curious about donor lists so you know it's not a totally crazy argument that there could be some First Amendment, freedom of assembly, which is you know interpreted as freedom of association argument here. You know, sometimes you see these cases where there is a subpoena served for membership lists of a party, for example. Um, and there might be a First Amendment concern there that it could have a chilling effect on the membership of the organization if the government can subpoena membership lists. But that's not what this is. This is uh, a, a, an effort to obtain her phone records to find out who she might have been communicating with around the time that they were collecting these uh, slates of fake electors. So I think ultimately the the committee is likely to prevail here. But, you know, in the meantime, we might see the Supreme Court take a look at this.
2: Yeah. And I I really appreciate you explaining what it means when the Supreme Court enters an administrative stay. I think a lot of times, including journalists who don't cover the court regularly, will make too much uh, of that. I mean, the same thing happened, for example, when um, Clarence, Clarence Thomas granted an administrative stay for um, Senator Lindsey Graham in his attempt to not have to testify in the Georgia investigation. We don't know anything about that um, until the court actually rules and tells us exactly what they're doing. And this is something that they often do in any number of cases. And this what Elena Kagan did was, very, was pretty much the same. Uh, and I think we need to wait and see, so that's important. And Joyce... There are uh, a few, there are few accounts of what transpired on January 6th, more awful and gut wrenching than that given by Capitol Police officer Michael Finneau. And I know our listeners know exactly who he is. And this week, we saw an important sentence handed down to one of the rioters who attacked him so brutally. Can you tell us about that? And what do you think of it?
0: Yeah, this has been controversial. And and you'll recall, I was sort of um, graphically reminded uh, in the sentencing hearing that Fanon is pulled into the crowd. And the defendant in this case sort of yells, I've got one, as though he's just sending him off to the mercy of the crowd. Um, Fanone has a cardiac uh, event has some neurological damage. It has ended his career. It's a really tragic case. He's just such an American hero. Um, The federal government asks the judge to impose a sentence of 96 months, and the judge imposes a sentence of 90 months instead. I know some people are upset about that, but I'm okay. And let me try to explain why. It's pretty complicated legally. 96 months is the statutory maximum sentence that's authorized. Couldn't go any higher. The court gives 90 months. This is a very unusual case. You know, our listeners will know we talk about sentencing guidelines a lot and how those guidelines often call for lower sentences than the sentence that the statute calls for, like bank robbery. The statute might say 20-year maximum, but the guidelines really mean that for a first offender, they might be looking at, you know, something like seven or eight years. That's not the case here. The guideline sentence was actually higher than the statutory maximum, so it could not have been imposed. The judge could not have gone higher than 96 months. You know, the 90-month sentence that she imposed, those 7.5 years, it's very consistent with the other sentences that have been imposed with January 6th defendants. It's on the very high end of those. And you don't want to go too high as a judge. You don't want to look like you're being arbitrary and run the risk of reversal. So this sentence, which is a long time, right? 7.5 years, I'm confident that that's enough to create deterrence, um, that that's a a lot of punishment for someone to spend that much time in custody. Um, And that it simply makes it possible for there to be room for the judges to go higher if they come across more culpable defendants. But I think a lot of people are are disappointed by this sentence and really wanted the judge to go all the way to the 96 months. What I loved about the sentencing hearing was she was absolutely deadlined straight up the middle talking with the defendant about his conduct. I regret that we didn't have cameras in the courtroom because she made it real clear that he was he was on the side of bad, that he was on the side of evil here. Um, She talked about this shadow of tyranny that we're living under in the country and attributed it to the conduct of defendants like this one, Mr. Head. Um, And she just did, I think, a really good job of saying what needed to be said and imposing a
2: righteous sentence. Well, I'm glad for that analysis, Joyce. I know we been focused a lot on the people at the top of the chain and their culpability in January 6. But I think it's equally as important that the people who committed crimes that day also be held accountable. And uh, it looks like that's what happened here.
3: If you thought former President Trump's post-2020 election coup attempts, including fake electors, which we've just talked about, an attempt to use the Department of Justice to undo the results, and 60 failed lawsuits brought by an unprepared and unqualified group of lawyers like Rudy, Sidney, and Jenna, and of course the violence of January 6th, if you thought those were horrific, you'll think it was child's play when you hear what's happening in preparation for the midterms, which are still 10 days away so let's dive right in. And Kim, it seems like Trump and the RNC learned from their failed attempts to undo the 2020 election and are now prepared to do some real damage to free and fair elections. They want to get results they want. So tell us what their pre-election lawsuits that have already been filed and what they foretell about the post-election period.
2: Yeah, it's really frightening, Jill. I mean, more than 100 lawsuits have already been filed. So We know the election is not here yet. It is more than a week away, but already challenges to the election next month have been filed. They've mostly been filed by Republicans or those aligned with Republicans. And they're targeting things like mail-in voting, which was expanded, early voting, voter access, voting machines, We've seen that before. And voter registrations um, in an effort to launch what seems like just pre-election challenges uh, in an effort to challenge if Republican candidates lose the election. And the sheer number of these lawsuits shows that it's part of a coordinated campaign, Jill. As you said, it was more of an ad hoc herky-jerky thing in 2020. And it seems like since then there has been a coordinated, well-funded plan to try to uh, affect the results of these elections. It's not like the not ready for primetime players we saw in 2020. Remember four seasons, total landscaping? (laughs) Yes, indeed. This is something entirely different. And it's not just the lawsuits. It's also efforts by state officials in many of these states. I will tell one quick anecdote is that my stepson, who is a student in Georgia, uh, registered to vote there when he arrived because he believes very much in elections. And of course, that's an important one. And he was bumped off. The election rolls already, based on the fact that he—I uh, think it's because he had a had received a driver's license recently in D.C. before he left. And he went through and had to go through red tape to get himself reinstated. And it's wonderful that he is so civic-minded that he made sure that he was reinstated before election day. Think about all the other people, the students, the new um, people who have recently moved to Georgia, who that same thing has happened to, and they may not know or realize or have the wherewithal to go through that red tape to get themselves back on the rolls. There is a coordinated effort to win by any means possible, even by playing dirty. That is such an awful story. I am
3: really sorry, but I'm very glad that he pursued getting back on the rolls. But that's not how America's supposed to work. And as you mentioned, uh, Kim, the Republicans are spending millions. They've hired 37 attorneys. They've done 5,000 hours of training and Democrats have Mark Elias, and as effective as he is, I wonder about the imbalance. And their better preparation has led to some success. Barb, in your state, they've won a lawsuit, in Nevada, in Arizona, and in Wisconsin. Can you talk about that and what the dangers are that it foretells?
1: Yeah, I, you know, we're hearing all of this reporting about these armies of Republican volunteers Who are being trained uh, for election day now as long as they comply with the rules of election day i don't think it's a problem you know there are i've been an election challenger where you go and just make sure that rules are complied with and you know nothing funny goes on but one thing i worry about in this time of election denial and what we saw in the last election with people at the TCF center in Detroit, now known as the Huntington, uh, Huntington place, I think it's called now, um, people banging on the windows. It was the big counting center, the centralized counting center where, you know, they're bringing in votes and counting them. And there were all kinds of false claims of fraud and, and a very intimidating scene for, uh, you know, the ordinary poll workers who just show up and want to do their civic duty and count those ballots. So I'm a little worried that if this, army of volunteers isn't just there to help and to monitor, but is instead there with an agenda um, that they could be disruptive or they could even intimidate people from showing up for the poll. So I, I think it is something very worrisome. I do take some solace in the fact that uh, at the U.S. Attorney's offices in every district around the country, there are election coordinators who are on call um, to address any problems that might occur and just generally keep the peace. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can get through that, but I, I am concerned about the extent to which they're organizing and some of the messaging that's going along with it.
3: It is scary, and I hope that our listeners will know that they can, if they see something do something about it by calling the U.S. Attorney's Office. Or I know in Illinois, you can call the Illinois Attorney General's Office, and they have people who are there to protect elections and polling places. Um, and we've seen hey, some sheriffs. Jill,
0: can I just add in there? We should also let our listeners know that the Legal Defense Fund and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights yes. will have 1-800 numbers available yes. the day of voting. They are Johnny on the spot. They're in touch with law enforcement and U.S. attorneys folks. And if you have any trouble, I I know I'll post those all over my Twitter and Instagram accounts. I bet we all will so that if you need it, just go look in there.
3: Right. And let's post them in our show notes as well today. That will help, I think. Um, So we've seen threats to poll workers and now to voters in the form of armed masked men at drop boxes who then follow voters home. They photograph their car license plate. And I'm wondering, what does this mean to free and fair elections? And also whether there's going to be enough poll workers, legitimate nonpartisan poll workers to do the job of elections. Will voters be deterred? Sheriffs have taken some steps. But Kim, can you talk about what's going on in terms of these threats and what else we can do to protect voters?
2: Yeah, it's really concerning. I know The Globe has been covering um, this issue for a long time, but we need poll workers. We need election um, employees to carry out our elections. And in the last couple of elections and in the lead up to this one, they have faced an unprecedented amount of pressure, threats, intimidation, um, so much so that it's caused some to say, listen, you know, this isn't worth it. I, I need to protect myself and I need to protect my family. Um, and you can't, you know, you can't blame them given what's happening. But it's also caused others to say, you know what, this is important, and this is a duty that I have, and I'm going to stick with this. But these people have faced uh, any number of threats, and it's a growing problem because you need people in place to administer these elections, and that's what the people who are threatening them know. And they've been trying um, very hard to do that. So we have had instances. Another problem that a lot of law enforcement people are facing is that sometimes when these threats, and I want to hear from you guys as prosecutors, because we've talked many times about how you need enough facts to fit the law in order to bring charges against people. Sometimes... What is happening, you know, sort of the soft intimidation, following people around but not actually threatening them, doesn't rise to the level of a crime. And law enforcement feel like they're not sure what, if anything, that they can do about it. So I want to hear from uh, you guys about what law enforcement can do, but it's an increasing problem. We need these election workers to carry out these threats. And we saw what happened, just as Barb pointed out, what happened in Detroit in 2020, which was caught on camera and broadcast to the world, but usually these cases are not.
1: Yeah, during the time I was serving as prosecutor, you know, we didn't have these massive fake voter fraud uh, claims. But what we used to do is uh, have meetings between our election coordinator, AUSA, and a number of civic groups. Anybody who wanted a meeting would get one. Uh, to talk with them about what you could do if there was an issue on election day. And so um, we had very minor problems, you know, very minor disruptions, nothing that rose to the level of a prosecution. Um, but, um, you know, I think that if somebody violates someone's civil rights and interferes with their right to vote, I think that kind of discrimination can be can be brought and should be brought.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I come from a different part of the country um, with different problems. And although I joined the office in 1991, we still actually had issues with allegations that people would go outside of black polling places dressed up in camo and armed in an effort to intimidate voters. There was a consent decree in place that prevented Republicans actually from challenging voter qualifications. It expired in 2017, I think. 19. Um, I think it expired in 17 and then in 19 it sort of got the last nail in the coffin. But it um it had provided some assistance but but look this is it's sort of a um it's a sliding scale. There's this issue where you've got everything from the arm dressed up if you go in and vote I'm watching you and taking down names to the more modern form of suppression which is these laws that have been passed in some states that make it more difficult for people to vote or the experience you know, that your stepson had, Kim. Um, and so all, all of these issues, it's problematic. And, and the people who can do something about it in many instances are the U.S. attorneys. It depends on how vigorous the support is from inside of the U.S. attorney's office, top down for taking these sort of situations on and aggressively going after them um, to the full extent of the law. Um, And you have to be willing to put the resources into them. They're not easy cases to do. They don't always have quick or positive outcomes, but it's tremendously important to stand up for the right to vote in your community.
3: Let let me end this discussion with one last question, which is the Republicans have already made it clear that in addition to continuing the big lie and putting up for election, a lot of election deniers, um, they've also um, made clear that they aren't going to accept election results they don't like. Are there any laws that will help protect us from that happening where they say, no, we don't accept it? And then especially if election deniers are elected to positions of secretary of state who determine the outcome of result of elections, What is there to be done about this? Uh, I'd like to hear from all of you if you have anything to say on this.
0: You know, I think we've become used to relying on the courts to draw the line here. And when it comes to interpreting some of these new statutes legislatures have passed and and deciding what they mean and and whether they're constitutional, there are those sorts of issues. Of course, we'll have this big issue that'll come up in the Supreme Court that'll involve um, who has the final say in uh, election results, whether it's state legislatures or state courts. But I'd say we've got rocky times ahead.
1: Um, I hope the the courts are going to hold. I I guess I would just add, Jill, um, that, you know, whether somebody concedes or doesn't concede, once an election is certified, that's the result, whether somebody concedes or not. But I think this trend of not conceding and even saying before the election occurs that I won't accept the results, that is so anti-democratic and anti-American. I mean, the, the the way to destroy democracy is to undermine public confidence in the legitimacy of elections. And that seems to be what's happening. You know, I, it's the way terrorists operate. If I can't win a conventional war, I will engage in guerrilla warfare because it's the only way I know how to win. Um, and and I, I really worry about the destabilizing effect this grab for raw power will have on our democracy long-term.
3: And if you read anything by people who have studied fascism, uh, Hitler, um, all of those things, they make it clear that what you're saying is exactly true. And undermining confidence in the electoral system is really key to taking power. So we have to be really cognizant of this and take steps to make sure we don't elect election deniers to office.
1: Well, I wanted to talk about some of the issues that arose this week in political violence. It's a disturbing trend. You know, January 6th, you would have thought would have been the wake-up call that would have sobered everybody up, but we continue to see it. Most recently, this attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Uh, an intruder broke into their home. You know, the reporting is still a little bit sketchy, but um, injured him, attacked him with a hammer and kept saying, where's Nancy? was looking for Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. So really um, concerning stuff. And um, one of the things that happened this week that was um, uh, brought this issue to uh, some attention was uh, in our home state of Michigan, Kim, where we saw three more men convicted for their conduct relating to the plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, This is the second trial or third, if you count the hung verdict. Um, Can you tell us what happened in, in this trial?
2: So, yes, in this case, three men uh, who were accused of having roles in the plot to kidnap the governor were convicted of all charges in state court. Uh, The three men who I'm not going to name just in keeping with my personal policy and not publicizing terrorists um, were found guilty of providing material support for a terrorist act as member of a paramilitary group. This group was called the Wolverine Watchmen. And as we've discussed before, growing up in Michigan, uh, the militia or paramilitia groups there were something that I was very were, were, well aware of uh, growing up. It's something that I know exists there and in other states. Um, and it's some; they are groups that have been um, galvanized and activated in recent years. Um, in in a very frightening way. So I think that this conviction, these convictions are very important. They were also convicted of uh, the charges of membership in a gang uh, and gun crimes as well. Uh, The prosecutors called the Wolverine Watchmen a criminal enterprise. So as I said, I think that this is important not only uh, to show that plotting to harm an elected official is serious and comes with serious consequences. In this case, I hope that there are serious consequences in the case uh, of Speaker Pelosi and her husband. And it's also important to bring light to this um, domestic, these domestic terrorist groups, which the FBI and the DOJ have been telling us for years and years pose the greater threat to American people uh, than anything else. It's not foreign um, terrorist groups. It is domestic terrorist groups, right wing terrorist groups that pose the greatest threat of violence to Americans. And I think that this is important to bringing light to that fact.
1: Yeah, I think FBI Director Christopher Ray said something like it's metastasizing this domestic terrorism threat in America. Yeah, I teach this course on um, national security and civil liberties, where we explore the tensions between protecting national security and safeguarding our civil liberties. And I've taught it for about five years now. And um, yesterday I, I taught on the topic of material support. And, you know, when I first started teaching material support, it was all about uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and foreign terrorist organizations. And, and now we have, you know, right here in our backyard, we've got uh, material support providing terrorism. In this case, providing the training to uh, the men who were going to kidnap Governor Whitmer and the land where they had built their shoot house so they could train on extracting her from the house with her security detail. I mean, incredibly chilling stuff. Um, And then there's one more trial ahead for five men in Elk Rapids, Michigan, up in Antrim County, where her um, vacation home is. She's got a a cottage here, which is where the event was going to take place. And five men charged there with also with providing material support for conducting surveillance uh, on the House. So really, really scary stuff. So Jill, let me ask you, you know, we, we're seeing this increase in political violence. Do you think criminal convictions can deter political violence um, or is this a new trend and we, we got to come up with a new solution besides just, you know, prosecuting people?
3: Such an interesting question, Barb. And when you look at the research, unfortunately, I think the answer is it doesn't really deter Um, even sentencing. I'm not just talking about prosecutions, but um, even sentences. And long sentences seem to have less deterrent effect than the sort of middle and short sentences. Uh, The Department of Justice has um, a publication out that basically says the certainty of getting caught is much more of a deterrent than thinking about a sentence or a conviction. And so I I don't know, and there is clearly a trend to political violence that is being uh, fostered by the big lie and by all of the statements from the former president and his colleagues who are saying that violence is a legitimate form of action. And so that's very scary. And I think we do need some new solutions.
0: You know, I am reminded that it was not Criminal prosecutions that took down the Ku Klux Klan, it was the Southern Poverty Law Center's lawsuit that bankrupted them. And, and maybe we need to be more 360 in how we deal with this problem, too.
1: Yeah, forfeiture proceedings, right? Going after their, their funds, their assets, their bank accounts, their. Take their money away, yeah. take their clubhouses yeah. away. And even sometimes their, um, their brand, right? Their name. The trademark, you can even take some of those things. Mm, mm-hmm. Joyce, I wanted to ask you about this um, attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. I know in your civil discourse newsletter you posted something about this um, about the the statute that um, might be used here and about um, deference to state prosecution. How do you see this case playing out? And I know you've got some personal experience dealing with uh, you know violence against family members of public officials and public officials.
0: Yeah, so, you know, the law covers this. There's a separate provision, 18 U.S. Code 115, that covers attacks um, on a family member of a public official. But there's also some very specific provisions in that statute, and it has to, in essence, involve, um, the. in this case, an assault. There's other conduct that could be involved, a murder, um, a kidnapping, other kinds of conduct. But here we're talking about an assault on Paul Pelosi, and it has to be something that happens... Um, in a direct connection to the work that his wife, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, would be doing to, to qualify. So Barb, you know this too. The first thing you always have to say in these situations is fog of war. Sometimes the early reporting doesn't pan out and we're hearing reports that the defendant, you know, kept saying, you know, where's Nancy? I want to find Nancy. There's reporting on CNN that he tried to tie Paul Pelosi to a chair and said he would keep him there until Nancy came home. If that sort of early information pans out, then this looks like the kind of case that the federal government would prosecute very clearly. But but whatever the case prosecutors will have to have evidence that will satisfy this very narrow dictate in the statute involving intimidation or interference with the public official's job. You know, normally, I think the lean, DOJ's guidance suggests that the lean is to let state prosecutors go ahead and prosecute an assault. But I don't think that'll be the case here. You know, this is the speaker is the third person in line to be president. There's the president, the vice president, and then the speaker. And if that's not a direct federal interest that should be implicated by a, a via a federal prosecution, I don't really know what is. At this early press conference today, we sort of surprisingly didn't see the U.S. attorney or the FBI there. Right now, it's a state investigation; the defendants being held on state charges. I'll look to see that morph over the next couple of days to include um, the federal family in that investigation. And of course, we wish all the best to Speaker Pelosi's husband and Godspeed with his recovery from
1: surgery. Yeah, good point on that. Yeah, um, you know, if this is just a break-in, if this is just somebody who uh, saw a crime of opportunity and tried to assault somebody because he was, you know, stealing things or something, then that's just a state offense. Um, And as you say, it's important to sort out the facts and prove the, that there was this motive to attack the speaker because of her official duties or to attack the family member of the speaker because of her official duties. So we'll have to watch uh, watch that play out, but certainly very, very concerning. Um, Jill, let me, let me turn to um, a, a, another issue in your neck of the woods, um, the Midwest, Wisconsin. A man was convicted at trial this week for attacking a Christmas parade in Wisconsin in 2021. Can you tell us just a little bit about that case? Absolutely. Um, he was
3: convicted after just about three hours of jury deliberation on 76 counts. Um, his name is Daryl Brooks, and it included six charges of first-degree intentional homicide. He drove his car into a Christmas parade where he killed six people and injured over 60, which is how you get to the seventy-six counts. Um, He at first was pleading insanity and had a public defender, but just before trial, he withdrew that uh, defense of insanity and fired his public defender and asked to and did in fact defend himself, um, which I think was a very big mistake for him. He used a defense called sovereign citizen, meaning that, like any state, he's a sovereign person and he's his own nation and he's not subject to government restrictions. Uh, The jury obviously did not believe that. They felt that he deliberately uh, did this. He also gave cause to the jury to not believe or trust him because he acted really... um, acted out in the courtroom and had to actually be removed into a separate room on a number of occasions where he could monitor and see the trial, but was not in the room. And the judge would mute his microphone, something that I wish would happen during debates sometimes when candidates go on. I think they should mute the microphone. Um, So that's what happened. He is guilty of intentionally killing people. There was no excuse for his behavior. Uh, He killed Um, a lot of grandmother dancers who were part of the parade, as well as young children in bands. Uh, So it was a terrible episode. And um, he did it with no, you know, no cause.
1: Yeah, you know, the sovereign citizen movement, you know, this is not a terrorism case. This is, I guess I don't know what motivated him to drive his car into the people in this parade but the sovereign citizen movement is one that is also disturbing kim talked earlier about you know what the groups that call themselves militias these private paramilitary organizations but the sovereign citizen movement is a group of people who say they answer to no one they are their own country essentially joyce did you did you deal with some of those folks in uh in in alabama when you were u.s attorney we had some here in michigan
0: You know, I did for a while, a big part of the sovereign movement was centered in Pelham, Alabama, um, and and they were particularly well-organized. This is a a really bizarre group with complex anti-governmental beliefs, and they're rooted in in racism and anti-Semitism. In other words, these are not nice, benign folks, although they have some hangers on who don't fully subscribe to all of their views. And what they seize upon is is this notion, um, it's sort of hard to explain and to make sense of, but they believe that the government has bank accounts for everybody when they're born, and they can demand to have that money back and become a sovereign citizen that's not part of the government. Um, included in their beliefs, they don't think that they have to pay taxes. They don't believe that they have to pay utility bills for a while. We had problems with Alabama Power Company people who would uh, go to these folks' houses and they would write on the back of their bills, I am sovereign, I do not have to pay, right? And they'd be like, what is this about? Um, but ultimately, they engage in paper terrorism. They file a lot of bogus lawsuits. They'll file, for instance, somebody tried to take out a lien on, on our house, Um, a couple of our judges had that sort of a situation happen. And that can be pretty difficult for people that they go after, and they can turn to outright violence. There was an incident in Memphis where a father and a son who were uh, sovereigns um, in a just a routine police stop uh, turned around and killed the the officer. So um, they are important to see as a threat. I think that this is one case where the FBI has done a pretty good job Um, of viewing them as a domestic violence threat group In many ways, they were dealt with not through um, any sort of violent crime statute, but by dealing with the paper crime, by dealing with the wire fraud or the identity theft. And for us, that became a valuable way to uh, dismantle their organization down here and put them out of business. But for instance, they went on a couple of years later to try to buy some land in Seattle and build their own jail. They were going to have sovereign sheriffs, and they were going to kidnap federal government figures Which sort of takes us, you know, back to Michigan, Barb, and and to everything that went on with your governor.
1: Very frightening. Um, And, of course, that shooting also makes me think of, um, that that attack, I should say, it was a car, reminds me of the shooting, Jill, in Highland Park, Illinois, when the July 4th parade was attacked by a shooter who fired into the crowd 21 shots or or killed 21 people um, and and faces charges in that instance. You know, I want to discuss in the time we have remaining, just the connection between, you know, this political violence and mental health because they do seem to go hand in hand. Although I don't think everybody gets a pass. I mean, there really are some people who are just um, so angry about politics and have been so riled up that they are engaging in political violence. Um, But Kim, in this case, the Christmas parade, Uh, attacker. Um, It looks like he and his lawyers disagreed as to whether to use an insanity defense. And he ultimately did not and decided to represent himself. Can you just explain to our listeners briefly what a defendant has to show to establish an insanity defense and the consequences of being found insane? I mean, in my, my practice, I found people did not uh, assert an insanity defense very often. And I think for those of us who grew up in the era of John Hinckley, I think that there was a common belief that you can just fake it and get off. Uh, And in fact, I I don't see it happen that much because you actually have to uh, uh, overcome some very significant hurdles.
2: Yes, it's not easy to mount this kind of defense. And under Illinois law, uh, a defendant uh, would have to prove that uh, he lacked the substantial capacity to appreciate the criminality of his conduct, his or her conduct. And the burden of proof is on the defendant in this case to make this case by clear and convincing evidence um, that he or she is not guilty by reason of insanity. But I think it's also what the consequences are. If you are found not guilty by reason of insanity that doesn't make mean that you get off that usually means um, most of these defendants are almost always confined to mental health institutions for indefinite periods of time which is also what happened to John Hinckley for a long period of time and I think perhaps we don't know we don't know what this defendant said to his lawyers and what led to that disagreement but Probably when it became clear, it's like, okay, you're not going home if this is the case. You may be technically found not guilty, but you're not going home. That's probably something that he didn't want. He probably thought, he perhaps, I should say perhaps because we don't know, thought he knew better than the attorneys and which is why he chose to represent himself. He probably, in whatever state he was in, thought that he could... Um, do a better job than they could is my only thought. But yeah, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free right. card that is either, as you pointed out, either A, easy to prove, or B, comes right. with walking free. <laughs> right. You can just...
1: I'm just going to pretend I claim temporary insanity and get off. That's a, that's a, as the, that was the popular myth. It does myth. not happen. You yeah. know, people watch too right, much right. Perry Mason. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, all of this to me is a very disturbing trend. I, I don't know that we have the ability to completely eliminate it, but I'll tell you what would be a good start is for our political leaders to just tone down the rhetoric, to have policy differences, even sharp policy differences, But the vitriolic attacks where they demonize their opponents, I think, really sets off people who might be looking for a cause. And so, dear leaders, would you please chill out?
3: I would say they also have to go a little further than just that. They have to condemn the violence. They have to say it's wrong.
0: Well, and unfortunately, one side of the political aisle seems to do that, and the other side doesn't. And it's so tempting to engage in both sides here and to say that all of our leaders need to tone it down. But you know, the reality is Donald Trump needs to come out and condemn the violence. I mean, yes. that would be powerful. It would take the temperature
2: down. Yes. And I think it's extremely unlikely that it's going to happen. And Joyce, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that it's coming from both sides equally. But what I do think is that it, it threatens... Both sides, it it puts everyone in danger. I mean, we have seen threats not just against Nancy Pelosi and 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 what happened, but just look at January six. Mike Pence was one of the main people who was in the line of fire. Liz Cheney has gotten a ton of threats. Remember what happened at the congressional uh, ba- a softball game practice where where Republicans were. Everybody is in Brett Kavanaugh. Everyone is endangered when this rhetoric heats up. But the the, the matches that are being lit under this, I I agree with you are one hundred percent coming from one side more than the other.
0: Well, now it's time for our favorite part of the show when we get to answer questions from our listeners. This week, we looked through all of your questions. They're fabulous questions and we appreciate them and the opportunity to think about the issues that are foremost in your mind. Um, But the three that we've selected, For the first question, this is a great question. It's very unusual. Kim, I'm going to pitch this one to you because I know you've got an article coming out on this topic next week. It's from Diane who asks, what are insular cases, particularly how does it apply
2: to American Samoa? That is a great question. And I think it stems from the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, recently um, declined To weigh in on whether or not to overturn the insular cases. So these cases were a series of rulings uh, between about 1901 and 1917, which essentially established that American territories and the people in American territories could be, um, would not necessarily have the same full citizenship rights as other Americans. On the mainland. They were also, if you read them, awful and racist. The reasoning was essentially that these folks, who are primarily black and brown folks in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, in places like Guam and American Samoa and Puerto Rico, uh, were quote, alien, quote, savage in a way that would make um, the Anglo-Saxon American rules very hard to use to govern them. They were they were awful. They were racist. And I don't think anybody disagrees with that. So there was a challenge that was brought by um, a group of American Samoans who live in Utah, uh, challenging the fact that they are not considered citizens. So um, the other uh, territories, including Puerto Rico and Guam and and others, were granted citizenship by Congress, by statute. They can't vote in federal elections, but they are U.S. citizens. They have U.S. passports, but not American Samoa. And so these uh, American Samoans challenged, uh, filed a, a, a challenge to have the insular cases overruled so that they can get full citizenship. But the government of American Samoa intervened, saying, no, no, we don't want full citizenship because they fear the loss of their self-determination, their autonomy, and their ability to carry out um, things like land rights in the way that they see fit there. um, The local chiefs, are in charge of determining land rights. And every American Samoan has and their family have the right to use land to live off of. And the American chiefs govern that. And what their fear is that they will end up being like Hawaii, which was an independent kingdom which was uh, you know, conquered, overthrown, and now they're a state and the federal. Uh, And state authorities have the rights to make these decisions, not the people, not the native Hawaiians. So it's a really interesting case. The Supreme Court has not taken it up now. I think it will come up again. But it really deals with how hard it is to wrangle legally and constitutionally with the vestiges of colonialism. How there's really, once you get into it, there's no really good way to get out of it.
0: So our second question um, comes from Mike, and this is a great question. We love these basic explainer questions because as a lawyer who's been practicing for a long time, you take so much for granted, and it's fabulous to have the chance to answer these questions that help people understand how the system works. So Barb, I'll I'll send this one your direction. Mike asks, what role does a grand jury play in federal charging decisions?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. The grand jury... Um, it must agree and must uh, hand up the indictment. So without the assent of a grand jury, an indictment cannot happen. So they usually work proactively on an investigation. So, you know, we're hearing about grand juries being involved in the Mar-a-Lago investigation and the January 6th investigation. Prosecutors will subpoena witnesses to come testify. They will subpoena documents and other records that they will show to the grand jury and they will put on all of the evidence. They have to show probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. Um, But of course, the principles of federal prosecution say prosecutors should only bring that case if they think they have enough evidence to actually obtain a conviction at trial, so enough proof Uh, to meet the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt standard. But ultimately, after the investigation is concluded, the prosecutor will present a proposed indictment to the grand jury and explain to the grand jury the elements of each of those offenses, uh, respond to any questions the grand jury might have about the law, and then excuse him or herself while the grand jury deliberates and votes on that indictment and only upon their approval. um, And it has to be um, the majority of a quorum which is um, I I think you need 16 to be a quorum and you need at least 12 of the 23 uh, votes to uh, hand up an indictment, to agree on an indictment. And so only with their vote. Sometimes they reject a proposed indictment by a prosecutor, um, but it is called a true bill when they vote to indict. uh, And then the foreperson will affix his or her signature on the document as well as the prosecutor. And then it gets filed with the court. Our last question
0: comes from Benjamin in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. This is sort of a fun question for everyone. Benjamin asks, who is the best lawyer each of you has personally worked with
3: and what made them so extraordinary? Who wants to start? I'll start that one. And I I mean, I've been blessed to work with a lot of extraordinary lawyers, but my mentor was uh, Charles Carson Frederick Ruff, known as Chuck Ruff. And he really was an extraordinary lawyer, both in terms of his trial skills in a courtroom, his appellate skills, his thinking skills, his unbelievable knowledge. And as you all know, I started practicing law long before there was Lexus and Nexus and before there was any computers. You had to go to a library. So if I was in the middle of a trial and I ran into a hard problem, i say, I need a recess, Your Honor. And I'd go to the phone and I'd call Chuck and he would just off the top of his head say, well, the case that you want to cite at page so-and-so is. Um, and I also tried my very first trial with him. So I got to watch how he cross-examined and how he thought about what to put before the jury. And I just learned so much for him, from him. And he was also completely ethical and moral and just was a great role model for all lawyers. So um, he went on to become the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia. He also was White House counsel in the Clinton administration. And, And he was just an extraordinary lawyer who I was very lucky to have in my life.
1: Well, there are a lot of choices and, you know, the quality I most admire in lawyers is really humility. Lawyers who will say, I don't know the answer. May I brief this, your honor? Uh, I made a mistake. Those are the lawyers that um, endear themselves to me because I think that is the best tradition of the profession. But um, I'll tell you a really great lawyer that I've had a chance to work uh, 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 against in cases who was... Uh, my adversary was a criminal defense attorney named Steve Fishman, who is phenomenal. He's great in court. And the reason he is so good is he connects with jurors because he is no nonsense. Um, There is no pomposity. There is no um, sprinkling of Latin in anything he says. He speaks in plain English and he speaks to common sense, which is what I think is so effective for jurors. And I'll give you just one example. I remember there was a time where he was representing a defendant in a high-profile public corruption case And the co-defendant was being represented by Jerry Spence, you know, who's a a very famous national lawyer with a national reputation out of Wyoming. He's got kind of this, you know, cowboy shtick uh, and, you know, very successful lawyer. Um, And he's in high demand. uh, At least he was uh, during the, the heyday of his practice. And he came to Detroit and he was handling this case. And he gave his opening statement, which was mesmerizing. And he started, you know, spinning the whole cowboy thing, like, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm from Wyoming and, you know, I'm just a simple man. And he tells the whole story. Um, And, you know, this is Detroit. And then Steve Fishman gets up and says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm from Wyoming too. Wyoming and six mile on the west side of Detroit. (laughs) And, you know, he just connected with them in a way like none of this nonsense, fake homespun stuff, you know, like here's who I am. Here's what I'm about. And let's just get right to the nut of this thing. So I just thought he has such a great connection with people that
2: um, I, I really admire that. Oh, that is so great. Given that my family is from Seven Mile in Wyoming, I I appreciate that story so much more. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, um, I did not practice law anywhere near as long as any of you. I practiced it for three long years. Um, But during that time, I was really uh, graced and blessed to work in a law firm that was headed by a man named Robert W. Harrington. And I love so much, I learned so much from Bob during those years. He, like me, went to Boston University School of Law um, and you know he also won the moot court competition when he was there just like I did. So I felt like a kinship with him. But the thing is as a young attorney, especially in a place like Boston, you know, I've talked about being a black woman practicing law in Boston, I was 25 years old. And the trust that he put in me The fact that he saw my potential before I did really changed not only my experience as a practicing attorney, but really changed my experience as a professional in life. You know, I went, I took a couple weeks off to take the bar exam and I remember I came back and there was a stack of legal files sitting on my desk, which was his way of saying, okay, you're ready, go, here's your caseload. Go off and do it. There were times that before I argued my first motion and I was really struggling about, you know, what legal uh, precedents I had and support. And I was saying to him, you know, it seems so commonsensical. Like it seems like a common sense arg- argument. And he said, well, go and make that. And at first I didn't. I was too afraid. I, I was trying to rely on precedent. And finally one day as I was walking to a courtroom to argue a motion, I'm like, you know what, this is commonsensical and I'm going to do what Bob said and argue it that way. I won. I won my first motion. You know, um, there were times when uh, opposing counsel in the civil litigation we were doing would try to go over my head. They didn't like what I was telling them. And so they would call Bob, who they've known for years and years. And Bob would answer the phone and say, hey, how you doing? Okay, hold on one minute. He put them on hold and he'd transfer them to my office. That was his way of saying, no, this is her case. You deal with her. Don't come to me. She is perfectly able to handle this. And those things meant so much to me. We also shared a birthday, March 30th, which was always wonderful to celebrate together. Bob passed away several years ago, um, and that loss was profound. But I will never forget the impact that he had on my legal career, on my entire career, and on my life. And I miss him very much.
0: I love stories about good mentors. I think even, you know, when you remember people with sorrow, it's just so uplifting and it's such a good reminder to all of us that we can um have that opportunity, I almost don't want to pick one person because I've been so blessed to work with so many good people. If I don't pick Doug Jones, I'm probably going to hear about that decision from him later this week. (laughs) Um, So Doug, I loved working for you. Doug was a great boss. Um, He made it possible for me to do civil rights work um, as an assistant United States attorney, and I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. But I'll just say, oh, and there are so many good people. But I'm on the board of a group called Alabama Appleseed, and our executive director is a lawyer named Carla Crowder, who came to us from Brian Stevenson's group, the Equal Justice Initiative, and she is such a remarkable lawyer. I feel so lucky to have the chance, really, I don't work with her directly, I just... Um, watch all of her accomplishments in awe because she both has the ability to work for individual defendants and she has done some really immaculate work in getting people out of prison who belonged out of Alabama's prisons. But at the same time, she's functioned very effectively on a policy level, getting a huge grant from the NFL to work on prison issues and just being relentless in in a beautifully sophisticated, well-thought-out way, but never never failing to seize any opportunity to move the work forward and remembering that as a lawyer, her job is is to serve people. Her Her job is not to, you know, it's not about her. It's not about career progress. It's about serving people. And I love um, at this late point in my career, having that example of such an amazing young lawyer and getting to work with her. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, and me, Joyce Vance. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw@politicon.com, or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tee and the hoodie, it's getting cold now, and all of our other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Moink, Blueland, OseaMalibu, and Stamps.com. You can find their links in the show notes, Please support them, they really help make this show happen. To keep with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with a new episode, Hashtag in law I have two different computers crammed down in here now until we're done renovating. And I never have the right stuff up on the computer that I'm looking at. Joyce,
2: I don't know how you're doing it. We just had people in for two days to paint several rooms in the house. And so we had to move things around out of the rooms and stuff. I thought I would oh die. in 48 hours. I don't know how you're living. If, like if they weren't the nicest. <laughs> yeah, Joyce has been doing this world, for months. Oh it my would God. be horrible. But I mean, it's like,
0: you know, like we're taking our stairs down and redoing them because they were built oh in 1927 God. and the banister is loose. It's just. Joyce,
1: if your life were a sitcom and it should be um it would have been a whole season that your house is under construction
0: so we have actually talked because my decorator and the contractor um actually just did a tape for hgtv Ooh. and they were like we just want to put you in it as our permanent client like what was that old tv there's a tv show like that right murphy this old house brown. yeah murphy brown was yeah. having murphy, oh, like a
1: new right. a new uh, secretary every week yeah. wait what's what's happening with like there's a